Belle Gunness, nicknamed Hellsbell by newspapers of her day, is considered to be one of the most degenerate serial killers in history. This Norwegian immigrant is thought to be responsible for over 40 murders in the United States and made millions off of her work before vanishing. Learn about this evil genius in this week's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome into Killing Missing Hidden, your favorite podcast about all the bad things. I'm your always chipper host, Brad, former criminal defense trial attorney extraordinaire. We've got a fun one this week as far as, you know, serial killers go. We don't get many female serial killers, and this one, this one may be the queen of them all. I really enjoyed this one, and I I hope you end up liking it as well. Before we begin, I want to say thank you to all of you who sent well wishes and support while I've been away from the mic more than usual this month. Uh, as you know, it's it's kind of you guys that I do this for, so I really appreciate it. I, I, I don't need fame or, or money to be successful at this. I just need your undying and unquestioned love. And maybe some bait goods from time to time. Major shout out to listener Catherine for suggesting this one. I think it's been sitting on our board for a little while, but but we got to it, Catherine. We did it. We finally did it. Just for you. A few promises I'm going to make regarding this episode. I will attempt to speak Norwegian, which will be an unmitigated disaster. I will reference a classic disco song. And I bet you won't be certain when this episode really ends. Hopefully that piques your interest, at least a little bit. So let's jump in. We got a crazy ride ahead of us. Buckle up. Bill Gunnis was born in Selbu, Norway in November of 1859. Now, because I know y'all love listening to me mispronounce things, I'm going to give it a shot at her birth name, okay? It was Brivi Pausdafit Strothdeset, if my research confirmed anything about how you pronounce it. Brivi Pausdafit Strothdeset. It, it really took me like eight to ten minutes just to figure out how to spell that name phonetically. Uh, I hope you enjoy the shame I bring upon myself. Anyway, Brivi was the youngest of eight children. Her father was a stonemason, and they also had a family farm that they all helped contribute to running. Now, Brivi grew into a pretty tall and powerful woman, especially, you know, for the time. Uh, she was five foot nine, which is roughly 1.75 meters. And somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 pounds or 91 kilograms. And it was pure farm-born muscle. Uh, if you watch the show Archer, you know the character Pam. Just, just imagine her. I know not everybody's classy enough to enjoy that show, but that's, that's the best comparison I could come up with. Now, I couldn't find any indication that her family was necessarily poor, but they certainly were not in the same class as, you know, 
such titans as the Vanderbilts or or the Kardashians. As a teenager, though, Brevi, she wanted the money, the cash, the dollar dollar bills. She wanted to live like a princess, and so she regularly attended dances, celebrations, things like that, in the hopes of snagging herself a wealthy fella. When she was 18, rumor is that she managed to snag one in one of the best trash TV ways possible. She got pregnant. So she had him for 18 years. 18 years. She got one of his kids and got him for 18 years. Until they had a slight disagreement and he beat the mess out of her, causing her to have a miscarriage. Now, because he was very wealthy and she wasn't, and because this was the 1800s where women weren't totally people, nothing was done to this young man legally. Now, I have to say, in fairness, this is a story that is passed around like folklore. There's really not any documentation that exists to support this tale. But I like it, so we're going to go with it. Um, in fact, sometimes the story actually involves a third person who was the father, and the wealthy young man was the suitor who got rejected by Brive, and that's what caused her to be beaten to a pulp. I don't buy that side or that version of the story because, you know, everything looks like this woman was after wealth, and so I can't imagine she would reject a wealthy suitor, but... Again, for all we know, the story is fictional. But if we choose to believe it, as many people do, the locals were of the opinion that she became a different person after this assault. She she went from being kind of, you know, a typical teenage girl for the time to being much more serious and focused and some even said calculating. And the young man who, who did this to her and got away with it, at least legally, apparently karma got the best of him because he died of stomach cancer about a year later. Even though he really had no previous symptoms, which is interesting. But regardless, as she blossoms into womanhood, Brive decides she wants to experience the world. She wants to travel. She wants to be more than a farmhand. So she moves out of her parents' farm and takes a job um, at a farm uh, a few villages over. Yeah. Now, now, look, in fairness, she takes a job as a servant for the farm owners who are wealthy, but it still kind of strikes you as an odd move. Anyway, she doesn't hang around there for long before she decides the good old U.S. of A. is where she needs to build her life. So in 1881... Brivi leaves Norway behind and immigrates to the U.S., where she officially changes her name to Belle. Thank goodness we are done with Brivi. All right, so Belle, she's about 22 years old when she makes this move. She enters the country through New York, but makes her way to Chicago because her sister, Nellie, had immigrated to the U.S. some years before, had established herself, and promised that she could help her sister get a job. And she makes good on this promise. Belle gets her first job in the U.S. as a domestic servant, not on a farm. But Belle didn't really enjoy being a servant. She decided she wanted something a little bit different, 
maybe something a little more glamorous, you know? So she goes and accepts a job as a butcher. Like, not the clerk that works at a butcher's store. No, she's the one cutting up the meat in the background. Which probably makes her family wonder why she moved so far just to return to a, you know, farm-centered career. She doesn't stay in this job forever. Uh, she gives up her bloody career when she meets and falls in love and marries a fellow by the name of Mads Sorensen in 1884. How good a name is Mads? I mean, M-A-D-S. That's, that's, it's, I love it. It's great. Now, two years after they wed, Mads takes Belle away from all the animal entrails, and together they open up a candy shop. I mean, how adorable is that? And I'm going to say with some confidence that the opposite of working as a butcher is selling candy. But sadly, this house made of sweets did not last for long. Though it was difficult to pin down any sort of firm date, it appears that the candy shop didn't last a year. Now, it didn't close because of money mismanagement or anything like that, but fire. Fire burned the entire thing to the ground. Couldn't be saved. But don't worry. Don't get sad. Mads was smart, and he had gotten some insurance on the business, so the family received a nice little check to cover their losses. Then, kind of surprisingly, but just as tragically, their family house burned down. Oh no! But thank goodness a friendly neighborhood insurance company was there to cover all those losses as well. This, this right here, guys, is why everybody loves insurance companies. Because they're always there to help you out. Now, using the I'm sorry, the proceeds from both of these insurance policies, the couples bought a new house, a better house. Belle and Mads lived in this new home and ended up having four children: Carolina, Myrtle, Lucy, and Axel. There was a house with both an Alex, I'm sorry, an Axel and a Mads. This family is just too cool. Axel and Mads. And my parents went with the name Brad. Sigh. All right, we hit 1900 before tragedy strikes again. Mads, our oh-so-beloved Mads, dies of a heart attack. Precisely on July 30th, 1900. Now, why is that date important? Well, interestingly enough, as we know, Mads understands the value of insurance, so he had life insurance. Well, he had a policy that was set to expire, so he went ahead and got a new policy. And for some reason, the old policy was due to expire on July 31st of 1900, but the new policy went into effect on July 30th. So for about 24 hours, he had double life insurance. And that's the day he dies. Hmm. Another interesting tidbit. Belle calls the closest doctor to check on her husband. And when he arrives, he looks at Mads and says, this dude's been poisoned. You know, there's no doubt in my mind. This, this is a poisoning. This isn't something natural. 
Well, then Mad's regular physician shows up and says, no, no, dear sir. I've been treating this man for years. He has a serious heart condition. The only thing that could have caused his death is a heart attack. Now, Mad's family went bonkers when they heard about what the first doctor had to say and demanded some sort of investigation be undertaken because, you know, we've got at least one doctor saying this is a homicide. But the police, they sided with Mad's regular doctor. He insisted, you know, I've known the dude forever. I've been treating him forever. I know him better than anyone else. This was a heart attack. And of course, police aren't in a position to say you're wrong, Doc, especially at this time period. So no autopsy was even conducted because the death was officially not considered suspicious. And because of the double life insurance policies, Bell received around $8,500 in 1900 money. So what is that today? That'd be like getting a check for around $300,000. So a nice payout. Bell uses this money to go buy herself a farm in Indiana, which is weird because she kept saying she wanted to escape the farming life, but she keeps pulling a reverse green acres and moving back to the farm. Now, not to kind of ruin things, but you'll be saddened and shocked, I'm sure, to learn that this building doesn't stay standing forever before a fire eventually burns it to the ground, too. Because golly gee, this poor woman is just cursed. But again, that's down the road a bit. I'm skipping ahead. Now, you know, having just said that, I don't normally like presenting our stories out of chronological order. I think it's easier to follow if I can just go down the time frame. But but we need to double back on one thing that I've kind of skipped over. So remember, Belle and Mads had four kids. Well, two of them did not survive infancy. Caroline and, sadly, Axel. Both died from acute colitis, which is a abdominal stomach digestive issue, causes nausea, fever, diarrhea, and severe lower abdomen pain. And of course, both children had life insurance policies when they died. I don't know exactly when they died. All I know is they predeceased their father. And there was a lot of gossip about these children in the community, not necessarily about who they were or how they died or anything, but folks were shocked that Bell had four kids, but never once looked pregnant, ever. And so a few were passed around the idea that they weren't really Bell and Mad's kids, that they had kind of adopted them. And there is some support for this theory because Bell has a fifth child that turns out to be adopted, a girl that she named Morgan, but whose birth name was Jenny Olson. So if you ever do your own research on this case, you'll see the name Jenny Olson a lot. But I'm referring to her as Morgan because that's what Bell that's what Bell did. All right, so we're going to jump back to our time post the life of Mads. Now, while in Indiana, Bell becomes acquainted with a widower named Peter Gunnis, who happened to also be from Norway. Peter was a rather successful butcher, and Bell fell for him. The pair married on April 1st, 1902, aka April Fool's Day. Seven days later, 
Peter's infant daughter died due to uncertain circumstances, according to official reports. All we really know about the incident is that an infant child was home alone with Belle when she died. Not long after this. All right. Well, now let's do this. Peter had another older daughter by the name of Svanki. And we're going to circle back to her story. I just want to drop her name now so it doesn't come out of nowhere down the line. So Peter had the two daughters, one that died in infancy, and then Zvangni. So Peter, you know, is living life, loving being married to Belle and all that, but he doesn't, he doesn't last very long either. Uh, he, he doesn't even make it to the end of the year. The police got a call when Peter was found dead in his kitchen. And according to Bell, what had happened was he was cooking up something and was reaching up on a top shelf and grabbed the wrong thing. And this really big, heavy sausage grinding machine fell off and struck him in the noggin, killing him instantly. Now, the coroner, when he got on the scene, he apparently was this crotchety old man, and he just kept grumbling to the police that this weren't no accident, this was murder. And along the same time, Morgan told classmates that she had seen Bell strike Peter in the head with a cleaver. On top of that, remember, you know, Peter was considered a very successful butcher, and all the locals thought of him as being very experienced and very careful in his trade. So much so that when they heard how he died, there was a little bit of public pressure for the police to investigate this as a murder. And, you know, coupled with the coroner kind of just grumbling about how the police were idiots and this was clearly homicide, everything. They decided, okay, we're going to convene a coroner's jury. And these men and women, well, probably men back then, uh, were assembled and charged with determining if Peter's death was accidental or murder. Now, Belle was remarkably cool during the entire investigation, and she played the part of the grieving widow so well that both the police and the coroner's jury determined that no murder could have occurred. Shortly thereafter, Bell received another life insurance policy payout, this one netting her a little bit more than $100,000 in today's cash. After the investigation formally ended, Peter's brother, who lived in Wisconsin, named Goost, took Zvangni out of the house and moved her into his house in Wisconsin. Also in the weeks following the conclusion of the investigation, Bell gave birth to her fifth child, Philip. A lot of people have said this is strange because Bell never played the I'm pregnant card with the police or with the jury. And, you know, back during these times, certainly that would have had an emotional impact you would expect on how things were handled but she never once said she was pregnant to anyone. It was just one day she had Philip. Belle 
again became the subject of gossip in 1906 when her adopted daughter Morgan disappeared. Now, Belle told neighbors that Morgan had been pretty successful academically and she had gone on to study at a Lutheran college in Los Angeles. But not everyone was quick to read or was quick to believe what Bell was uh, selling here. A year goes by and Bell starts placing personal ads in some of the larger newspapers in the Midwestern United States, particularly those that catered towards Norwegian men. We have some of her ads, and just for example, here, here's one that she posted. This is all a quote. Personal. Comely widow who owns large farm in one of the finest districts in Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Well, I don't know what the world was like back then, but she apparently made quite an impression through her personal ad because she was awash in suitors. I mean, seriously, hallelujah, it was raining men. Belle was going to go out to run around and let herself get absolutely soaking wet. She regularly spent her Sunday afternoons going on carriage rides, adorned in her finest clothes, which was a stark contrast to the dirty overalls neighbors normally saw her in. That, that was what they imagined when they thought of Belle. But here she is, dressed to the nines, and she's always accompanied by a handsome slice of man cake with her each time. So I, I've got a list of some of their stories. Let's, let's go through them real quick. John Moe, I think, is considered the first to have officially replied. He was from Minnesota, and he brought with him $1,000 in cash to pay off the mortgage on Bell's farm just to demonstrate how serious he was about marrying her. But John never returned home. When neighbors asked who this dashing man Bell had been seeing was, she dismissed him and said, oh, that, that was just my cousin. He came for a visit. He's, he's not dashing. He's family. We have George Anderson, who is from Missouri. He promised to pay off Bell's mortgage as well, but he wouldn't pay until they wed. Now, since he had traveled from Missouri to Indiana, he was staying in Bell's house, but he was sleeping in the guest house when suddenly George was awoken by a really odd noise. And he looked, you know, he, he sat up and he looked, and he saw Belle standing in the doorway. And he claimed that she had such a look of murderous violence in her eyes and in her smile that he just turned cold and was terrified. And it scared him so much that he jumped out of bed, which scared Belle away, and he just grabbed his suitcase and dashed out the back of his house, out, out of the house, leaving most of his personal effects behind. We've got a fellow by the name of Henry Gertholt who responded, but he didn't have any wealth. 
Nevertheless, he showed up, Bell took him in, and he wrote a letter to his family shortly after he arrived saying how much he enjoyed Bell's company, how beautiful the farm was, and then he went silent. When his family questioned Bell, she claimed that, you know, yeah, she and Henry headed off, but they quickly kind of got cross with each other. And Henry kind of stormed off one night to join a horse trading company out of Chicago. And that was all she knew. Next, we have a fella that's only known as Mr. Budsberg from Wisconsin. Now, this dude was much, much older than the average suitor. But he stayed with Bell long enough to visit the local bank and to mortgage his entire farm for some quick cash. He never returned home. Bell denied ever meeting with the man when he when she was questioned by his sons, and nobody in town could ever really affirmatively say that they saw Mr. Budsberg in Bell's company. One more, uh, Andrew Helligan was a another man who was charmed by this large woman. He rushed off to be with Bell in January of 1908 bringing his entire life savings with him. Now, the pair were seen together about town, specifically at the bank, depositing Andrew's life savings into Bell's local bank account, and then he wasn't seen after that. Now, the disappearance of Andrew is kind of a story in and of itself. For you see, while Bell was swimming in man love, Propriety required some sort of courtship period pass before she could let any of these men, um, how would you delicately say it, um, absolutely rock her world. Belle had thus turned to one of her farmhands, a dude by the name of Ray Lampere, to help, oh, again, how do we, he, he helped. Dust the parlor room's floor. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Now, Belle viewed him solely as a tool, you know, that she could use. He, he was useful in doing chores around the farm. He was useful in the bedroom. But Ray saw things differently, and he was deeply in love with Belle. She soon picked up on this and began taking advantage of his puppy-like loyalty. And he got involved in performing some rather gruesome chores that we'll get to later on. Now, Ray tolerated most of the suitors Bell brought, but he didn't like this going on at all. And it was when Andrew arrived that Ray kind of blew up. And he made a huge scene on the front porch. Neighbors saw it and all this. And Bell had no choice. You know, she, she fired him on the spot. But that's not good enough for Bell. She then goes to the courthouse the next day and petitions to have Ray declared a nuisance and menace to society and asks to have him institutionalized. Now, fortunately, the court ultimately denied this request, but Ray wouldn't leave Bell alone. Like he kept coming back to the farm trying to win her heart over. So she was able to have him arrested on trespassing charges. Now, all this is going on, and Andrew's brother comes on the scene, 
and starts causing a fuss because he didn't buy any of the excuses Belle was selling. You know, she basically said, I don't know. Andrew just left the farm. And his brother's like, no, no, he, he no, no, come on. So Belle starts feeling some pressure coming down on her for a change. She's got Ray on one side pushing her. She's got Andrew's brother really, really hammering on her. And she doesn't know what to do. So she goes to a local lawyer and asks him to draw up a will for her. And during their conversation, she kind of divulges that, you know, she was terrified at this Ray fella. She was convinced that he was going to attempt to murder her. And, you know, he had said he was going to burn the house to the ground. And she wanted to have her affairs in order so her children could inherit everything that she had worked so hard for. Now, she told this to the lawyer, but she never went to the police with the story, which many people, in retrospect, found odd. Well, just a few months later, in April of 1908, Bell's worries all came true. Joe Maxson, he, he was the man she hired to replace Ray as a farmhand. And he was sleeping in kind of a guest room slash servant's quarters kind of set up when he woke up to some weird noises and the smell of smoke. He opened up the bedroom door and he saw the hallway was more flames than wood. So he can't do anything. He's trapped. So he starts yelling and making a fuss for Bell, for the kids, but he couldn't receive a response. And he stayed in there until eventually the fire was coming into his room and he had to jump out of his second story window down to safety. He ran into town to get help, but by the time help could arrive, the house was just utterly destroyed. Now, the sheriff was among those who responded to the call for help and accompanied Joe back to the house. And, you know, he looked at the scene and quickly concluded this had to be arson. He had his deputies go through the rubble, and they found three little bodies. Bell's three remaining children. Myrtle, who was 11, Lucy, who was nine, and Philip, who was five. They also discovered a woman's corpse, but the head had been removed. Now, when the sheriff starts poking around, the lawyer Bell had gone to visit contacted the sheriff and said, hey, listen, you need to hear the story. So the sheriff hears the, sto hears the story that Bell was telling to the lawyer and immediately has Ray picked up and arrested for arson and murder. Now, Ray insists, I was nowhere near the farm that night. I've been set up. You know, I didn't do any of this. Law enforcement found at least one person who was willing to testify to the fact that he or she had seen Ray running down the road away from the farm when the house first took to burning. Now, this woman's corpse was a weird little puzzle for investigators. Of course, you walk into the scene saying, that's Belle. It has to be Belle. But certain facts didn't add up. 
Now, again, the head's missing, so nobody's certain how tall this woman was, but the best estimates that could be given by, for lack of a better term, we'll call forensic experts, even though there really wasn't forensics way back when, believe that the woman's body was that of someone who was only five foot three or 1.6 meters and probably only weighed 125 pounds or 57 kilograms. But again, they couldn't be certain of the height aspect, at least without the head. Neighbors were called over to inspect the body and they all unanimously said, oh no, that's not Belle. That looks nothing like Belle. She was way bigger than that corpse. It was just obvious to them that this body was too small. But near the body was found a piece of dental bridge work. And when the local dentist examined it, he said with absolute certainty that this was bridge work that Belle had in her mouth. It would have been made for her. It was installed, you know, implanted in her mouth. And so based upon the total circumstances and the dentist's opinion, the coroner and law enforcement officially declared the corpse to be that of Bill's. She was buried next to her husband, not Mads, it was Peter. I wouldn't want to be married next to Mads, but anyway. Um, she was married, buried next to Peter, and... That's how Belle's life and the life of her children ended in a burnt farmhouse. But the story's not over. So we've got these dead bodies. They've identified to their satisfaction who everybody is. But somebody's got to clean up this mess. And so some locals were hired by, I guess, the county to get rid of all the rubble. And guess who shows up to the house at this precise moment? Andrew's brother. Now, he goes to the sheriff and tells his story about why he believes Andrew was murdered. And the sheriff kind of says, what do you want me to do? I mean, if Belle did it, she's dead. But if you think your brother's buried over there, you can join in the cleanup efforts. That's fine. So he does. You know, he, he he's... Definitely makes a strong effort to be in the running for the Brother of the Year Award. So he goes out to the farmland and he watches the cleanup efforts for his spell. Once the men kind of cleaned off the foundation of the house, they began scooping up the remains that lay in the dirt surrounding the house. And they did so with a shovel. And while they were shoveling, one of the men found a man's watch that was buried, you know, three or four inches under the ground, not very deep, like somebody had just dug a shallow hole and thrown it in there. And it appeared to have blood on it. On top of that, another man found another watch. And then another watch. And then some bones. All in all, by the end of that day, the cleanup workers had found eight men's watches, uh, innumerable amount of human bones, and the best part, just bagfuls of human teeth. 
I mean, nobody besides a dentist should have seen this many teeth. Andrew's brother then got actively involved. And he was like, man, let's go search the hog pen. And they did. And in the slop, they found four graves containing four bodies that had been dismembered and then wrapped on oilcloth. And sure enough, one of those bodies was Andrew's. Once these bodies were found, the sheriff was like, okay, now I'm interested again. So he calls in that Joe fella for official questioning, and Joe was pretty honest. And he said, yeah, one of my jobs was regularly to fill in depressions that would appear in the earth. Bell specifically had me bring in a bunch of dirt to fill in the hog pen to level it off. And there are other locations on the farm where I had to do this too. And Joe was kind enough to mark on a map all the spots he remembered filling in these depressions. Now, when the sheriff asked him, well, what, why were there so many depressions? He said, I really don't know. Belle told me sometimes that she would bury garbage on land, and I figured that's what most of these were. So they go to all the locations Joe had marked on the map, and in every stinking one of them, they found at least one body. They found, in total, seven adult bodies that could be identified, three children's bodies that could be identified, and this included missing daughter Morgan, and they estimated that they found parts of as many as 40 bodies, though only 14 complete skeletons were found. Almost all of the missing suitors we talked about, and additional ones, because she had several come through, were eventually identified through uh, coroner and medical examiner efforts. Now, it is believed that there are only three people who ever shared a house with Belle in the United States and survived to tell about it. And that is Joe, the farmhand, George, the suitor who fled in the middle of the night in terror, and Svani, Peter's oldest child, who was taken away by her uncle to live in Wisconsin. Everyone else ended up dead. Ray Lampier was questioned after his arrest about what went on, and then he was charged with arson and murder, the murders of Belle and her three children. He insisted he was innocent, but he was found guilty of the arson charge, though he was not convicted of any of the murder charges. He was sentenced to up to 21 years in prison, but he only lasted about a year before catching tuberculosis and passing away. And with that, we have the end of the story of... Nope, 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 not yet. We got more, we got more. We've got more. This one just doesn't end. During Ray's trial, testimony was offered that he confessed to both a priest and a fellow prisoner that he worked that while he was working for Bell, 
he would be instructed to clean up the messes she left after she killed someone and then body or bury bodies in places that she instructed him to. He also confessed to this priest and this fellow prisoner that he did set the house on fire, but he had nothing to do with killing Belle or the children. He claimed to love Belle so much and also enjoyed the company of her children. He claimed that the female corpse they had found was actually a young immigrant woman Belle had found in Chicago and hired as a housekeeper. The night the woman moved into Belle's house, Belle allegedly poisoned the young woman, cut off her head, took the head herself to a local swamp with weights tied all around it, throws the head into the middle of the swamp so it can't be found, takes the now headless corpse, strips it naked, Belle puts her own clothes on the corpse, and then, just for the cherry on top, she rips out her own bridge work and throws it on the floor next to the corpse, all in an effort to keep investigators from figuring out what was going on. Ray claimed that Bell had murdered 42 men and had ended up swindling or stealing about a quarter of a million dollars from them through her personnel ad scheme. And today's money, that's around $8.4 million, give or take. Now, investigators did look into Ray's story, and they discovered that Bell had numerous bank accounts around the city, and all but one were closed within a week of her death. In other words, she was closing the accounts, and then she died, according to the official story. Now, for years following this event and the reports of Ray's testimony, people would report seeing Bell living all over the United States. There were two sightings that occurred most frequently or were the most reliable. I guess the most frequent report was that Bell had moved down to Mississippi. She bought a huge chunk of land down there. She helped finance and support a lot of the police and political functions in the county and lived as a recluse. So no one bothered her. The police wouldn't investigate her. The politicians wouldn't let the police get involved. And she kind of lived out her days alone in this mansion, enjoying her wealth. The more widely believed report, however, was that Belle changed her name to Esther Carlson and moved to Los Angeles. Now, why do people believe this? Because in 1931, a woman named Esther Carlson was arrested for poisoning a Norwegian man as part of a scheme to steal his money. Though photos were circulated to those who knew Bell, and multiple people said, that's not Esther, that's Bell. She died after being in jail after only a few weeks. 
And there's rumors from the prison staff that when they, you know, they removed her body and they cleaned out what little personal effects she was allowed in there. One of the things she had was a picture of her children, the children that had died in Indiana. If this was Bill and not this Esther woman, she would have been in her early 70s around the time of her death. So this mystery has kind of haunted historians, criminologists, and detectives in general for decades. In 2007, some graduate students from the University of Indianapolis attempted to solve this riddle once and for all. And so they received permission to exhume Bell's body that was buried in Indiana next to Peter and attempt to compare that body's DNA with DNA they had collected on a letter Bell was known to have written to a suitor. Unfortunately, the test was deemed inconclusive because the DNA on the letter had degraded too much to be tested with any confidence. One last twist. Because, of course, there has to be one last twist in the story, right? Ray Lampier recanted portions of his confession, and he admitted to having killed Belle and her children with an axe before setting the house on fire. Now, allegedly he did this because he had already been found not guilty of murdering Belle and her children, so he felt like he was free to talk about his crime because of double jeopardy. He couldn't be tried again, right? But people questioned this because this second confession was made public by a reporter's wife after the reporter had passed on and apparently the way the reporter got this confession was he was hired by his boss, his editor, at whatever newspaper he worked for to get to the truth on what happened to Bell. And so he had paid a priest to go visit Ray in jail and kind of pester him into confessing. And when Ray was ready to confess, the reporter was allowed to attend the meeting. And allegedly, the reporter took down everything Ray said word for word and had him sign it. But again, this was not published until after Ray was dead and the reporter was dead. And... It took a long time before the actual documents were ever made public. And while I didn't find any stories directly on those documents, stories about this event seem to insinuate that the general belief is this, the, at least the signature of Ray's was not, not his. It was forged. And so that concludes the story of Belle Gunness. No more twists and turns. We're done. Now, having said that, I do want to walk us back through our story a little bit. Because I think there's some inferences that could be missed if you were not hanging on to my every word. You know, 
if you're listening at work or while driving, instead of hunkered down, focused solely on your phone with headphones in and no other distractions in the world, which is really how you should be listening to this podcast, right? Now, um, you could possibly miss some of this. So it seems to me as though Bell was very comfortable using poison. Well, from the time that we know she began her killings, we can kind of walk backwards and see that maybe her killings began a little bit earlier than we thought. I mean, let's not forget about Mads, right? The first doctor who sees him says, this dude's been poisoned. Her two infants that didn't survive very long. Yes, they were thought to have died of this digestive abdominal issue, but the symptoms, the vomiting, the abdominal pain, the nausea, kind of reminiscent of poisoning, huh? And we know from later events that she's got no problems killing kids. If we believe the story that, that you know, she faked her death and ran away. Well, can't we go back any even further? I mean, what about when she's living in Norway and the one guy beats the mess out of her and then suddenly comes down with stomach cancer? He's a young man. I mean, I assume late teens, early 20s. He has no symptoms and then is just dead one day. You think maybe she learned something while she was still living in Norway and started applying it? Now, she only gets credit for the bodies found on her property, but I think there's an argument that we could add three or four more to the list. Now, one aspect we didn't talk about that maybe we need to touch on to help put in context how all this worked. You know, Belle was a large woman by our standards, but at the time, she was actually considered fairly attractive when she made the effort to be. Again, her neighbors almost always saw her in overalls covered with mud. Maybe if she had butchered a hog, she'd have some blood on her. No makeup, of course. Her hair is just tied up in a bun or put under a hat or something. And on top of that, she wasn't viewed as very feminine by her neighbors or the community in general. In fact, you know, a lot of men would come to her when they needed help moving something because she was so strong and powerful. And there's one report, of course, totally unverified, but a neighbor claims that Belle bought a piano for her house because she enjoyed music. And she was able to move this 300 plus pound instrument into her house by herself. That would be quite an impressive feat, especially when you consider she was in her 40s when this occurred. But, 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 despite all of this, when she was on the prowl, she could catch some eyes, okay? She liked wearing a very tight corset to really, to really, you know, inflate her hourglass figure. She apparently did have a nice figure. In fact, one newspaper even claimed that when she was wearing this corset, her measurements were 43, 37, 54. Now, in today's society, we would consider that a big woman. But 
apparently around the turn of the century, you know, big was beautiful. And this was a figure that men would drool over, you know, because you had the you had the good sized chest, you had the good birth and hips. On top of that, she had naturally blonde hair that stayed blonde. She never went gray as far as we know. She also had unusually white teeth and a very infectious smile. And so her dolled up, you know, with this sexy hourglass figure, big smile, blonde hair. She could really, you know, light up your life, light up a room before, you know, she killed you. And she was also really, really smart in the way she went about pursuing her victims. Again, remember, she placed these personal ads in primarily Norwegian newspapers. And there was two main benefits she got from this. First, if someone immigrated from the U.S., from Norway to the U.S., they're a stranger in a strange land, you know? They're trying to make ends meet, and she's, of course, looking for those that have been successful. But even if you're successful and you're living in a big city like Chicago or what have you, what are the odds that you're going to find someone who can really create those meals that you grew up with, that your mom made or your aunt made or your grandma made? Well, Belle was considered to be one heck of a cook. At least when it came to when it came to Norwegian cooking. And so this instantly, you know, added several points onto how attractive she was to Norwegian men. On top of that, by focusing on mostly immigrants, the odds of them having a family who would check up on them regularly were pretty low. I mean, in fact, you know, I, I read you some of the stories and some of them had family members that were looking for their son or their brother or whatever, but really only one pursued the issue with any diligence. So she was able to get away with arguably 40 plus murders because she picked her victims very well. And of course, I mean, it's the mystery surrounding her death that really makes the story, isn't it? You know, Again, like I said, female serial killers, I mean, they're not unheard of, of course, but they're not common when you're looking at serial killers. And Belle was just an unusually effective one. And then, you know, the entire third act of this case just ratchets up the mystery and the intrigue because how did she die? Did she die? Well, obviously she died at some point, but how did she die? We, we, was that her in the house? I mean, it couldn't have been, right? That body frame does not match her body frame. But by the same token, that's a lot of effort to go to to cover up a crime. And I really wouldn't put it past Belle to do that. You know, I, I am of the belief that that was not her body. If you were asking me what happened to her, you know, we've got those two main stories. I don't think she became the Mississippi queen. That doesn't seem, I mean, this woman had the equivalent of millions of dollars when she burned down her own farmhouse. 
she didn't care about the money, in my opinion. I mean, she was living on a farm. Maybe she was viewed as successful, but she wasn't viewed as royalty. She wasn't a billionaire in these people's minds, you know? She was just somebody who ran a farm and did a good job at running a farm. I mean, the piano story is the closest I can find to her ever dropping a bunch of money on anything. So I would say she didn't care about the money. So her retiring to Mississippi to enjoy her wealth doesn't seem to fit with the facts that we have. I buy the Los Angeles story. That crime matches up too well with how she was living her life during those final days, right? Or the final days that we know she was alive. There she is trying to seduce another male suitor to get his money. And she ends up poisoning him as part of the scheme. I couldn't find many details about how that arrest went down. I don't know if she got sloppy. I don't know what the deal was. But she ended up being arrested. And I cannot look past the fact that the, her victim was Norwegian, which just totally fits the profile of all of her other victims, doesn't it? I mean, it's crazy. So I'm L.A. all the way. Also, I think we have to give special props to me for being able to work in the lyrics, not only to a Weathers Girl song, but also a Kanye West song. In an episode about a Norwegian serial killer in America, I would dare say this has never been done in the history of podcasts. We're making history here, baby. Of course, another shout out for Catherine. Thank you so much for recommending this case to me. I don't know if I ever would have found it on my own, but I was so tickled once I finally sat down and studied it at what a great story this was. If any of y'all have any weird, fun cases like this, please do not hesitate to send them to me. I love them. They're so great. All right, that's going to do it for me this week. I am cautiously optimistic that we're going to be returning back to our normal release schedule, starting with this episode. I've managed to get a lot of the fires in my personal life put out. I've, and that's, that's, that's been a major blessing regarding my mental health. Now, I know when I announced how October was going to be, I said I'd be working on a special episode and I hope to come back with one, with that one. Well, I didn't. This wasn't the special episode. I'm still working on it. I'm hopeful I can get it to you by Thanksgiving. But frankly, this is one I've always wanted to cover, and I feel like there's a lot of bad information out there, so I'm trying to be pretty diligent in getting good information together as best I can. You know, I, you know I'm not an investigative reporter. I can't fly over the world and interview people or things like that. I just sit my fat butt in a chair and see what the internet can vomit up for me. But I'm, I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. Um. Also, remember, this is our last episode of October, which means this is the last chance I get to plug our merch store's October offerings. If you haven't gone check them out, please do. 
I know a lot of y'all have asked about supporting the show and whether I'd bring back the Patreon. I'm not. I don't like that Patreon format. I don't like the idea of people having to pay for episodes. I think the episodes and the content should be free. I'm not a good businessman, as you can tell. But offering merchandise, I think, is a good way to support the show because at least that way I feel like you're getting something out of it in addition to just the content. So I don't feel like I'm ripping you off. So go check out the store, see if there's anything you like, and gobble it up before the end of the month because in early November, we'll switch over to new designs, as we always do. Okay, palette cleanser time. Now this one, guys, I'm warning you, it's awful. It is truly just bad. I did not let Mr. Eli do this one because I saw this joke and I was like, yes, we're doing this one. I don't care. I'm allowed to be awful. So here we go, okay? All right. It, all right. Here's the joke. I have been working really hard on a Scandinavian joke. It would be sweet if I could finish it soon, but right now there's just Norway. Ah? Ah? Oh, oh. I mean, it just warms my heart with how awful that one is. But it should make me very popular in the Scandinavian world, don't you think? I imagine people are rushing to translate this into Norwegian and Swedish and other languages so it can be shared in people's native tongue. That's, that's the best way to listen to it. Although I did a heck of a job on some of those pronunciations, huh? That, that was probably actually above average for me. Because my average is very low when it comes to pronouncing words I'm not very familiar with. Okay. Um, thank you as always for listening. Please continue to subscribe, to rate us, to review us, to share our work. We're not one of those podcasts at the top of the Apple charts that can sit there and buy listens. You know, have you heard about that? Yeah. That's how they get to be so popular. They just buy the listens. Now, this is actually, you know, like organically grown stuff here. Okay. We've got our little, you know, quarter of a million listens. Thanks to Y'all sharing and y'all being loyal listeners and I guess, you know, having poor taste in podcasts, maybe. Even though we'd love to sell you some merch, it, it does make our hearts warm so much more just to see the reviews, to see when we're shared, when, you know, if you retweet something we do on Twitter, you follow us on Instagram. Those are great. And I would say that about any indie podcast that you follow. You know, even if I'm not your favorite one, take your favorite one and go out there and promote them. Try to help them grow because we just can't compete with all these corporate backed ones. And honestly, I think the corporate backed ones to me, they've got a lot of advantages. I'm not dishing on anyone who listens to them at all because they can do research I could never do. They can pull together a team of experts I never could, but they all sound kind of plasticky, you know? Um, uh, it's the indies like us that kind of, I guess, are more the pirate radio version of podcasts. <laughs> and so again, it doesn't have your mission this week. It doesn't have to be killing Miss and Hidden. I would love if you would pick us, but take your favorite indie podcast and just share the mess out of them with your friends, with your coworkers, you know, put on your Facebook page. If you've got one slap up on your Instagram. 
do whatever you can just to make one indie podcast grow a little bit more. This, that's the only way we can spread how awesome all of us are, are these little tiny creators that work so hard. But um, okay. Until next time, in the words of Belle herself, don't let triflers apply to reside in your heart. Okay, guys? All right. Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.